Well, let's go to Psalm 53. If you haven't yet, Psalm 53. We're, we're going through the book of Psalms, and if I was not a consecutive expository preacher, guess what? I would skip over this. Yeah, I would skip over Psalm 14, too. Yeah, Psalm 53 is one of those that I don't think any topical preacher is going to pick on, uh, or he's going to pick to preach on, because the topic is way too offensive. In fact, I think it's even proof that God wrote the Bible. No man would ever write this about man. It's far, far too real, uh, and it's far too true for us. And yet God has given us what we need to know and what we need to understand about man's radical corruption. So Psalm 53, follow with me. It is from the title, it is a Moschiel of David. Verse one, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them is turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge, who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? There they were in great fear where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God restores his captive people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. For the choir director on stringed instruments. Father, we pray that as we look into your word, that you would humble every single one of us tonight, that as we come face to face with the reality of our own sin, that we would be humbled, that we would be astonished, that we would be sickened by the reality of sin, and that we would quickly run to Christ again. For his love and his grace and his mercy, thank you for the great salvation that is available in Christ that liberates us from the power and penalty of our sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Bible teaches that sin is a loathsome disease. You think of a disease You might go to the doctor and they tell you that you have a disease. Well, a disease spreads. When we understand a disease, it it forms within you and your body. In fact, it, it can be unseen. A disease is harmful to ourselves and to our bodies. It it can even kill if it goes unchecked and untreated. It can debilitate a man. It can weaken a woman. It, a disease is, is infectious. It is ugly. And to be sure, diseases are stubborn. They're stubborn. And that's like sin. It's a great metaphor for sin because our sin is a loathsome disease. 
The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 that all men and women, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin. Don't miss that preposition. We're under sin. Think of it like a million-pound barbell that you're trying to bench press. You could never get out from under it. You're under the weight of sin. And then Paul goes on to say in Romans 3, verses 10 to 20, that we are depraved in our will. There's no one who seeks God. We are depraved in our works, that all men are guilty and depraved and corrupt. We are depraved in our words. Our throat is an open grave. We are depraved in our ways because we are, we are violent. We are godless. We are corrupt in our ways. And there's even no fear of God. So there's no worship of the true and living God in our sinful condition. Man is really, really bad. Man is really bad. But I want to go further. Listen to Hosea 5 and verse 2. Hosea 5, 2, God says, The revolters have gone deep in depravity. Job chapter 15, 16 says that man drinks iniquity like water. Isaiah chapter 1 describes the sinfulness of man, saying the whole body is sick. From the foot to the top of the head, there is nothing sound in all of the body. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, How can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? In Genesis 6, verse 5, God declares, right before he floods the whole world, God says, The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and the thoughts and the intentions of his heart were only evil continually. In Romans seven thirteen. This is where Ralph Venning got the title of his book, that sin would become utterly sinful. Jeremiah 2.22 is a sobering text when God says, The stain of your iniquity is before my eyes. Every sin is a stain, and it's before the eyes of God. In fact, Nahum chapter 3 verse 19 says that there is no relief in you, and God says your wound is incurable. So not only do we have a disease, we are incurable. There's nothing that we could ever, ever do to be cured by our own power and ability. Thomas Watson was commenting on the sinfulness of sin, and he said, quote, Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The more that you understand how sinful you really are, the more you will see the beauty and the power and the glory and the love of Christ. David wrote Psalm 53. You see it in the title there as a, the Hebrew word is maskil. Again, that word in Hebrew means it is a psalm meant to give you wisdom for life. Not only intellectual knowledge, but it ought to transform how you live your life. Interestingly, Psalm 53 has a, has a twin. Psalm 14 is nearly identical word for word all the way through. There, there are a couple of differences, and Psalm 14 
uses the title Jehovah for God. Psalm 53 uses the Hebrew word Elohim or God to speak of the Lord. But Psalm 14 was probably written first, and then Psalm 53 was edited and added at a later point in the Psalter. But whatever, what it, whatever the case may be, God gave us a psalm two times. Two times because the doctrine of sin is most important. And guess what? If there's any doctrine that our world blatantly rejects, it's the doctrine of sin. It is of urgent importance and vital understanding that we get it. We want to look at the doctrine of sin tonight in two ways. And really quite simply, I want to take a couple of words from George Whitfield here just before we look into the outline. Whitfield would always preach in most of his sermons I read in his biography, he would say, you are ruined by your sin, but you can be redeemed by Christ and you must be regenerated by the Spirit. But, but the redemption that is found in Christ and the regeneration from the Spirit doesn't do anything or mean anything if you don't think that you're ruined by your own sin. So we had to begin with man's ruin. We want to look at that tonight. So I'm going to spend a good bulk of the time preaching verses 1 to 5 because that's the bulk of the psalm. Man's radical corruption. What is sin? Martin Luther defines sin really quite simply as this. Sin is man's departure from God. Boys and girls, what is sin? It's running from God. That's what sin is. It's running from God. And when we read verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We all know that verse. And we've all said that verse to people who claimed to be atheists. But really, if we're technical about it, verse 1 is not teaching about philosophical atheism like the Richard Dawkins type atheist or the Christopher Hitchens atheist or the Charles Darwin atheism. Verse 1 is not talking about a, a profession of philosophical atheism. Romans 1 deals with that. Romans 2 deals with that. Rather, what verse 1 is dealing with is not the profession of philosophical atheism. Rather, it is the practice of selfism. Meaning, here's the person who says, I am my own God, and there is no one who's going to hold me accountable. He's a practical atheist. Nobody in the ancient world was a technical atheist, like a Charles Darwin type sense of the word. They all had their own gods. Rather, they might live in a way where the judgment of God and accountability to God did not impact the way that they lived. So when verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, it's not an intellectual statement, it is a moral statement. Here's the person who's living his life in such a way where he loves to say, I'm autonomous. I'm independent. I'm in authority over my life. I'm unaccountable. I'm sovereign over myself. I'm able. I'm able. I, I can. I can do it. So, I suppose if we boil it all down, the essence of sin is selfishness. A man says in his heart, that's the root of this sin, it comes from the heart, man's thinking, his disposition, his desires, 
there's no God. And then we want to study it further in verses 1 to 5, where we learn more about man's radical, selfish corruption. Notice how he is corrupt in your outline first, in his heart. He's corrupt in his heart. Man has said in his heart, there is no God. In his desires and longings and aspirations, man defies the lordship of God. He's he's corrupt in his heart. He's also corrupt in his deeds. Look at the end of verse 1. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable injustice. Verse 1, there is no one who does good. The deeds are corrupt. The conduct is corrupt. The ways of man are corrupt. He has committed abominable injustice to God. That means he is a stench in God's nostrils. Third, man is corrupt in his mind. At the end of verse 2, We see that God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands. This is interesting. It's a Greek word and a Hebrew word in the Bible as it uses it for anyone who can comprehend God. Is there anyone who comprehends? Is there anyone who understands God? Is there anyone who wants to engage his mind with God? Answer, no. No. Man's corrupt. In his heart, he's corrupt in his deeds, he's corrupt in his mind, he's corrupt in his worship. Look at the very end of verse 2. Is there anyone who understands, who seeks after God? In Hebrew, that word for seeking God is the idea of worship. It's the idea of praying, seeking, pursuing, adoring worshiping God. Does man in his natural ability, man who is born, does he automatically seek God? Does he automatically pursue God? Does he automatically worship God? And God's own testimony says, no. Not only that, in verse 3, look at how the psalm continues. Man is corrupt in his disposition. Verse 3, every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. It's the idea of Isaiah 53, that each one has turned to his own way. This is not a passive, oh, it happened to me. This is an active, we are wandering sheep. And we have turned away from God. We have turned to our own way. Man is corrupt in his disposition. Next, man is corrupt in his nature. At the end of verse 3, there's no one who does good, not even one. Like, there's, there's no one. And we see it in verse 1, there's no one who does good. We see it at the end of verse 3, there's no one who does good, not even one. I mean, there's, there's not one person. But isn't that humbling that you can go to a, elementary school, junior high, high school, university, and the average teacher will tell kids, you're good. You're good. You can be who you want to be. You can live how you want to live. And yet, if there's anything, if we're just honest, that's more satanic than that, I don't know what it is. It's so contrary to what God's word says. We're not good. 
There's none who does good, not even one. And notice verse four. Look at how the psalm continues. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat my people as though they eat bread? This is God saying through David that the ungodly are so evil that they persecute God's people as if it were as natural or habitual as eating bread. That the nature and the disposition and the sinfulness of man is so corrupt that they don't mind doing harm to God and God's people. It's just their nature as if they're eating bread. It's natural. It's no big deal like eating bread. Verse 5 even continues it. They were in great fear where no fear had been. This is a Hebrew way of saying they were in great tragic living with a guilty conscience. It's like, it's like afraid of their own shadow. It's like, it's like a, the tragedy of a life lived with a wounded conscience. They're, they're fearful when there's, there's no fear. Amazingly and Tragically, in verse 5, it ends, God scatters the bones. That's a, that's a pretty graphic way in Hebrew of saying they're humiliated and shamed when God kills them and they don't have a proper burial. At the end of verse 5, you put them to shame because God rejected them. I mean, this is the sudden horror when God pursues his enemies and they find out that they've been foolish, but it's too late. They are in fear, they are in dread, they are in terror, and God has rejected them. By the way, there's one more point I, I missed earlier. It's in verse 2. Do you see where it says, God has looked down from heaven? Why does the omniscient God who knows everything need to look down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understands. Uh, God doesn't need to take a closer look. He doesn't need to zoom in the camera. He doesn't need to figure out anything. God knows it all. The language of verse 2, God looking down from heaven, it is a Hebrew way of talking about a precise, (laughs) careful, deliberate act in judgment. Like the flood. God looked down from heaven and saw the sinfulness of man. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, God looked down from heaven upon Sodom. Like, um, where is it, in Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, when God looked down upon the tower that they had built. This is language of judgment. God is looking from heaven and he sees the sinfulness and he's about to act in deliberate, careful, specific judgment. If we just stop right here, what an absolutely tragic psalm. I mean, what what man would write this? What, What human being would write this about all human beings, about our condition, our nature, our heart, our desires, our worship, our deeds? I mean, every one of us are corrupt through and through. You know, when we look at the Bible... And we study church history, 
And we understand the doctrine of man, anthropology, and the doctrine of sin, homartiology. I give you some conclusions in your outline. I want to read these. We're going we're gonna to get in a little theology class here for a sec. I think that these are seven points that we need to know and grasp and understand. Number one, there is the seed of the worst of evils in all of us. Now, I believe in the doctrine of total depravity, but that doesn't mean you're as depraved as you could be. Every one of us here is not a Hitler, but every one of us has the seed in our heart to become a Hitler. That's what radical corruption means. It's not that you're as bad as you could be. It's that we have that little seed of the worst of evils in all of us. Number two, in your outline, we are all lost and we are all dead and we are all helpless in our sinful nature inherited from Adam. Romans 5 would be the scripture for that. Number three, This is super important. We cannot come to God, John 6 tells us, nor is man willing to come to God. You know, sometimes people might say, oh, you know, I I don't know if I'm elect. I don't know if God is going to call me to himself. I really want want to come to God. No, no, no. The Bible says that in man's lost state, not only is he unable to come to God, he doesn't want to come to God. The sin is so bad, it is so crippling, it is so thorough, it is so corrupting that not only is man unable to come to God, he is unwilling to come to God. Lost men hate God. Number four in your outline, you see this here, man's pride is so blinding that he cannot detect nor discern the sinfulness of his sin. Isn't that humbling? I know I have more sin in my life but my pride blinds me to much of it. I I know that there's much more in my heart that is so corrupt and foul, but in my pride, I think I'm much better than I actually am. Number five, God's anger and his wrath, I believe Romans 2 teaches, Listen, it increases as man's sin increases through the duration of his life. Genesis teaches this, 1 Thessalonians teaches this, Matthew teaches this, that as man lives his life, the duration of his life, the anger and the wrath of God is fuller. God's wrath increases all the more. Number six, man, the Bible teaches, is a deformed monster. Sin is madness. It is madness. It is anti-God. In fact, early Christians in church history, they called sin the murder of God. But that's really what it is. If, if I sin, it's like, it's like attempting to murder God and put myself in the place of God. Number seven, sinful man can do outward deeds of kindness, right? A a Mormon, a Muslim, a Jewish man, a Roman Catholic, a church-going legalist. They, They could do outward deeds of kindness, but they're springing from a heart of sinful arrogance, and thus, Romans 8, 8, natural man cannot please God at all. 
Now, all that to say, man is really, really bad. Man is really bad. I mean, do we see that? Do we understand that from the breadth of Scripture, the theological doctrine of sin is that we are so crippled, we are so deadened, we are so enslaved to our sin. But then you'll inevitably meet someone that will hear you say that, and they'll say, yeah, but God knows my heart. Well, I'm thankful Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Mark 7, 21. Or Psalm 5, verse 9, there is no truth in their mouth, their innermost self is all destruction. Or Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart of man is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Desperately sick. Let me pause for a sec, because sin is heavy. Hamartiology is heavy. Let's leave the theological orthodoxy for a minute. Let me ask you some questions. Just ponder your own heart for a sec. Where, where in your life do you live as if there was no God? As if there was no God looking at you as Lord over you. As if there was no Lord who is justifier of your soul, counting you righteous in Christ. Is there any place in your life where you could point to and say, you know what? I think I'm a practical atheist there. Or maybe number two, the wisest the wisest, most skillful way to live your life is to actively seek God. And that's the end of verse two. We must be seeking God. Think about your current heart desires. Like right here, December 2023, does your daily practice prove that you're actively seeking God? Why or why not? Those who pursue their sin, according to verse 4, are like those who are eating bread. And they're marked by, by the, as those who don't call upon God. Question. What role does calling upon God in fervent worship and prayer have in your own life? Think of the, the role of worship and prayer and intercession in your own life. And how can you improve that discipline in your own Christian life? Verse 5 talks about those who were in great fear where there had been no fear. What about this question? Do you have a guilty conscience in any part of your life? About a generation ago, there was a godly man in churches who would greet other men. You know what he would say? Do I, do I meet you? with a clean conscience. What a great greeting. Do I meet you with a clean conscience? Do, do you stand at all fearful where no fear should be? 
And then finally, I want to come to verse six here because, because verse six is the beauty of the gospel. And yeah, I love how Lloyd Jones said, I would give 90% law and 90% wrath and 90% sin until the sinner finally cries out and he says, what hope is there for me? Ah, let me give you Christ. We flee to Christ. We flee to Christ. How in the world can we escape the dungeon of sin? Uh, how, how can man, how can boys, how can girls, how can children, how can all of us escape the modern word is addiction. The biblical word is bondage or slavery. How can I be free from the slavery to my sin? One answer. And it's found in a very simple word that we all know. It's the word salvation from the Lord. And that's verse number two in your outline. Not only do we see man's radical corruption, but now we see God's radical salvation. Here's what we read in the Bible. Sinners need to fly to Christ. I love that. Fly, run, jet, flee to Christ. Hasten to Christ. The Puritans would say you have to close with Christ. Don't just look at him. Don't just know about him. Make closure with Christ. Don't refuse him. Run speedily, desperately, believingly to God through Jesus Christ. Look at the beauty of verse 6. Look at verse 6. I love this. Oh, oh, that, that God would give salvation. The word in Hebrew is give. That God would give salvation to Israel. That it would come out of Zion when God restores his captive people. You know, when we talk about salvation, the word salvation actually means rescue. So when we say, I have salvation, are you saved? Has God given you the salvation? You're saying, have you been rescued? Have you been delivered? And verse six, the salvation word is in the plural for intensity in the Hebrew. Oh, that God would give the infinite deliverances, all that we need, all of the rescue, all of the grace that is needed. Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, God has chosen his people from the beginning for salvation. Titus 2.11, God's grace has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Revelation 19, verse 1, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Oh, that salvation, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Guess what? He did. His name is Messiah. And he literally did bring salvation from Zion. And he will restore his people. As 
there hope for man and his great corruption? Is there hope for man lost in the deadness of his sin? Is there any hope for man caught in the bondage saying, I can't break free? Is there any hope? Yes, it's found in Christ and in the salvation. We were dead, but he gives us life. We were lost, but he found us. We, we were the guilty ones, but he declared us forgiven. We are stained, but God presents us unblemished in Christ. We were God-haters, but he made us God-lovers. We were evil, but God has made us righteous in the Son. We were diseased, but God has made us healthy. We were imprisoned, but God has made us free. Can you say that? Can you you sing that truth tonight? Can you sing personally, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We have every reason, according to Psalm 103, to bless the Lord. And forget none of his benefits. And I suppose we should end where we began. Topical preachers wouldn't pick this. It was a, why would you pick this psalm? I mean, you'd empty the church if you did that. But on the other hand, I'm so thankful that we can look at this psalm. Because it tells me and you who we really are. And then it brings great glory to Christ. So we're left to say hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.